This is Real Estate Rookie episode 264. But oftentimes, if you do a new build in 2023 versus a rehabbed house that was built in 2005, the, the value of that property, especially if you're looking at it as a short-term rental, which is what we do, um, is typically higher, right? The 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 construction we can we can rehab a house that was built in 2005 to the nines, but the the construction style, the aesthetic of a house built in 2023 is going to be more modern than a house that was built in 20 in 2005, even if it was rehabbed really nicely. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Robinson. And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And I want to start today's episode by shouting out someone by the username of Lukester8891. Uh, Lukester left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It says, encouraging podcast, Tony and Ashley. Uh, their podcast is extremely informative and encouraging. Thank you for creating a space to give people like me the knowledge and extra nudge to feel confident about investing in real estate. And that that really, I like the, I like the way you phrase that, Lukester, for giving and creating a space to give people like me the, the, that space to feel confident. And that's really what the Real Estate Rookie Podcast is about, is that there's so many, there's obviously a ton of information out there about investing in real estate, but sometimes it can feel overwhelming. Sometimes it can feel, um, I don't know, like just too much to try and like drinking from a, a, a fire hose. And the purpose of the Ricky podcast is to give every single listener uh, digestible, usable pieces of information and stories to really help move them along in their journey. So if you all are listening and you haven't yet left us an honest rating and review, please do. The more reviews we get, more folks we can help and helping folks is always our goal. Ashley, how are you doing today? Good, good. Well, first of all, if we haven't said it enough, thank you guys so much for those of you that have left reviews. We love reading, you know, what you like about the podcast and, you know, how it's benefited you. And especially when you guys leave us your wins, like what you have accomplished. So when you leave a review, make sure you kind of share that with us, what you have learned from the podcast from one of our guests. And who was your favorite guest? Who do you love? Or maybe who do you want to come on to the show too? So we've been having a lot of uh, production meetings as to, you know, who are some of the best guests we can bring on for you guys that will uh, bring the most value. I believe it or not, it's just not boring banter. We actually do try <laughs> and, you know, plan value. things out and yeah, yeah really strategic about be, uh, be how we operate the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Remember when you had to pay to get a leads phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. What does financial freedom mean to you? 
more time with your family and friends, the ability to take that globe trotting trip, or do you, do you just want to sleep in until 10 a.m. every day with no boss to answer to? Real estate is your gateway to financial freedom, but rent-ready property management software is what keeps your free time actually free. From seamless online rent collection to custom applications, property marketing tools, and repair request tracking, RentReady allows your portfolio to run on autopilot. The best part is you can manage all your rentals right from your cell phone. And that's why RentReady is my favorite property management app around. I use it for all my rentals. Whether you've got one or a dozen doors, RentReady helps you streamline how you manage your rental properties to create a life you love in 2024. Now, Rent Ready is already included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six month plan for $1. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com. And use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor to get six months of Rent Ready for $1. TurboTax experts make all your moves count filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side hustled your way to some extra income, flipped a house, or finally bought your first rental property, your moves made a big difference in your life last year. Now it's time to make the most of your moves. Switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. So, um, Tony, uh... What rehabs? What are you what are you working on? Anything? Yeah, we got we got some big plans for 2023. I know we had our like our goal setting episode a, a few weeks ago. Um, but a, a big focus for me is I still do want to close on my first like big commercial property this year. We're looking at um, hotels, boutique motels, uh, kind of around the country. And we learned a lot last summer with that deal that we had under contract, but but didn't end up uh, being able to close on. And really it was the the purchase price. Like we had raised a couple million bucks, we needed a couple million more. And it's like, well, man, how many deals could I have bought with like the two something million that we had already raised? Like there's a lot of properties out there that we could have bought. Um, so I, I think we're gonna go back and, and probably just reduce our, our purchase price a little bit and, and try and find something that makes a little bit more sense in that price range. And then another big goal for me is launching our uh, property management company on the short-term rental space, as well as our short-term rental cleaning company. So um, trying to find the right kind of like COOs to, to run point on those ventures for us. Um, but I think those are two big gaps in the short-term rental marketplace. Like there is no well-known nationally like nationally known brand in the cleaning space for short-term rentals um and there definitely are property management companies that are big but i feel like we're we're in a unique position where we've built a portfolio of our own first and um you know we're hosts first and property managers second so we, we kind of have a different perspective from a lot of these other companies that have been around for a while so do you are you going to start out with just offering it in the markets that you operate in now or what is kind of like your plan to grow and scale it will be more of like a franchise model eventually? Or is it something that like you want to continue to oversee the markets and you'll select which markets you're going into and continue to grow yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. And and, and we haven't really decided yet. The franchise model is something that, that I think might work. Um, but I also do like the idea of kind of, you know, really retaining control over certain aspects of, uh, of the brand. But I think initially we just want proof of concept 
we already have the infrastructure. So we have the operations team, um, you know, to do all the guest communication and working with the, uh, the, the maintenance crew and the cleaning staff. So really we do feel like we can take that infrastructure into any market. We just need to find the right cleaners and handymen in those markets to support us. Um, so we, I think our biggest focus is, is just finding the right properties and the right owners to work with. And then, you know, we'll let the markets kind of take care of themselves. Yeah. So for me, I'm taking back my property property management. We've used for the past three years, property management company. And now what I'm doing is just building out a property management company again, where last time when I first started, I was self-managing. So I was a property manager, I was a leasing agent, everything. And now this time I'm hiring a property manager. Um, I think she's actually going to be signing her contract this week, which is super exciting. And then, you know, I'm just going to oversee everything and basically just have it done the way that I want it. And, uh, but like, we're not taking on any clients. It's just my properties and the properties of my business partners. I'm, I, and that is like one thing I don't want to have to deal with owners. Like tenants can cause issues and things that's time that sometimes the owners are worse than the, and I know this because like of other owners of, you know, talking about like, how they interact with their property management company, me as an owner to my property management company, I just like, I don't want to deal with that. And I always think of like, I think of teachers, an example, like having to deal with the students in their class, but then having to deal with the parents. And sometimes the parents are worse than, (laughs) so like part of my big vision and goal for 2023 is like figuring out what are the things that I don't want to deal with that like feel heavy to me. And one of those things is being responsible to other owners. Like, do I, I very confident that I could start this property management company and right away, I already know that I have these owners that would come in that I can, you know, share overhead with, but I just don't want that responsibility of like, you know, there's, there's something that's happening and going on. Okay. It's my cash flow. It's me saying to take care of this problem. I'm just going to, you know, spend this amount of money to have it taken care of where if it's an owner, it's somebody else's property. I can't just go say, go and spend this money and take care of it because that's their cash flow. That's decreasing. That's their issue. So I like having control over, you know, making the decision that it's going to impact me and my properties and not that it's going to impact an owner and not having to really worry about that, I guess. Yeah, that that definitely is a concern for us as well, is that as you scale, there's a lot of personalities that you have to deal with. But I also think that's why we want to be pretty selective with the owners that we work with. And if that person is uh, not, I don't want to say a pain because I, I think that's, that's like an unfair representation, but if that person maybe is, is looking for a level of involvement in the day-to-day operation that is not in line with the kind of involvement that we want from our owners, then maybe it's not a good fit. And, and I think that's what we're trying to scale up pretty slowly to make sure that it's, you know, we, we want people to trust us, um, and, and that are coming to us for our expertise and not people who feel like, Hey, I can do a better job than you can. And and trying to teach us how to be short-term rental operators. So there's a fine line there. And that's, you just described me as an <laughs> <laughs> but but, and, no, but that's a good point really. <laughs> because I, I think you were in a position where you honestly could do a better job than yeah, that property was, manager that you have. Right. Uh, yeah. And I wasn't, I had that experience. And I think like in your situation, like you, you're vetting the owners too. You're not just going to grow and scale so fast that you're taking on anybody. 
just to like maximize your client base and maximize your revenue that you are going to be selective. And that also also gives you kind of that exclusivity too, as to like, you want to, to be an owner and, um, not to use the word like train, but like, as you take on new investors, new owners as kind of setting those expectations as to like, this is what we expect of you. And this is what you expect of us. If either of us kind of vary from that, that's where we have like a situation as to, you know, how do we work around that? Or maybe the partnership isn't working because really it is a partnership, especially when it's your investment property. You're no longer in control of the the day-to-day operations of that property and maximizing cash flow and things like that. You're trusting your partner, the property management company, to kind of oversee all of that and really maximize the performance of your property. And that's one thing I didn't understand when I hired a property management company is I should have asked a lot more questions. And, you know, one example is, okay, the water bill, it goes into their billing department, their payables. And, you know, somebody's there scanning in the bills, they go ahead and pay it. And then, you know, it's taken care of. Great. Like I don't have to pay bills, things like that. But there's also no one going and saying, wait, this bill, the water, the water bill was hundred dollars last month. Why is it all of a sudden $250? Like is the toilet running? Is there something going on just because it's going into a general department that doesn't know your property, things like that. So, um, yeah, I feel like I'm getting way off on a tangent. No, but, here, that, but that that's like, like such a good point, right? It's yeah. like how do you how do you set those expectations up correctly at the onset or not even at the onset before the relationship even really begins? And there there's a great book that I just read and it, it's called Never Lose a Customer Again. And the the book really focuses more so on like larger companies, but it's like when you are looking for customers how can you have conversations at the beginning and then how can you structure those first 100 days of that relationship so that a your customer has a really amazing experience and they stay a customer for a long time but b that the expectations that you have of them and that they have of you are super clear on both ends that way both of you know how to operate effectively within that partnership so the never lose a customer again i can't recall who the author was but it was a, a great book that i really enjoyed yeah that's and i think that would have helped me work with the property management company better is if we both had expectations of each other and had set that ahead of time um because like I'm sure they do a great job. They've grown and scaled so much over the past couple of years that obviously they have a successful business model in place, but it was just like different than what I expected. And we should have had those clearer expectations up front. Okay. So our first question is from Annie Johnson, and this is through the Real Estate Rookie Facebook page. If you haven't already, make sure you guys join the Facebook group. There are over, I think, 60,000 members in it right now. And it's a great way to ask questions, get information, or to even share your own advice and wisdom. Okay. So Annie's question is, has anyone partnered in an LLC for out-of-state investing? Did you use an attorney in your state or the state you were investing? Does it matter? Any insight on this subject is helpful. This will be our first partnership and LLC. We decided we do not want to do a legally documented partnership agreement. Okay, so I'm wondering why as to that last question, because when you create an LLC, you have to create an operating agreement, which is the terms of your partnership anyways. So 
I think that if you do, no matter what, if you create your LLC for it to be a legal LLC and to function the way you want it to, you have to do the operating agreement, which is basically a partnership agreement in itself. Yeah, and I, I really quick, I just want to shout out. So Annie, who's asking this question, this is actually um, Annie Hatch Johnson, who was a guest on uh, episode 46. So I, I recognize the the face and the, the name there. So shout out to Annie. I think she last last we talked to her, she was uh, somewhere in this, like here, uh, I can't remember, in the Midwest somewhere, but she actually ended up moving to Alaska. And uh, her and her husband were like doing some short-term mental stuff out in Alaska. So shout out to Annie. So Tony, do you want to actually answer this? Because you've done this a lot more and I think you actually do joint ventures, but the only out-of-state investing I did was with James Dainard and we did a joint venture agreement where we had our own separate LLCs and they came together in the joint venture agreement. So we had, you know, my New York LLC and then his Washington state LLC and then did the joint venture agreement through that. And we had the whole operating agreement documented as to how the partnership worked for that one deal. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And, and the majority of our partnerships are through uh, joint venture agreements, not necessarily new LLCs that we set up either. <clears throat> but Annie, I'll give you a little bit of um, insight based on the conversations I've had with, with my attorneys and different you know, SEC attorneys and things like that. Um, every state is different. The, the information that I was given, and again, I'm not an attorney, so please consult with an attorney to make sure that this information is accurate. Um, but like for us, we were looking to purchase property that was in California using uh, a new LLC. And your question around like, you know, is it in your state or the state where you're investing? Um, there are some some limitations. So for example, there there's better tax treatment in states other than California, obviously. Um, but say I wanted to create an LLC in Delaware, but say I was in California, the partners in California and the properties in California, I can't create a Delaware entity to hold title and collect rents on that property in California. Um, so depending on what state you live in and what state the property's in, there are some you know laws you have to follow around where to create that entity. So my first piece of advice, Annie, would be to ask an attorney um, in your state um, or in the state where the property is located to get their advice on where you should structure that in, that entity and, and kind of what state it should be focused in. Have you seen anything different on that front, Ash? No, no, I really haven't. I also haven't looked into it that much though, but that's kind of what I've heard, I guess. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, so that, that's the first thing, right? Is talk to your attorney to, to identify what state it is in. Um, I think the second question, this kind of goes back to, to Ashley's piece is, um, you said we decided we do not want to do a, a partnership agreement. And I'm assuming when you say that, Annie, is that, you know, like you don't want to go the route where we went of just having a joint venture agreement, like you actually want this entity to be in place. But to Ashley's point, I, I think you still want to go through all of the, um, like the the same thought processes or like exercises that you would if you're doing that partnership agreement to make sure that if for whatever reason there's not tension, but you know, every partnership is going to have its bumps and, and maybe disagreements. And the more time you spend upfront answering those questions, uh, the better. There is a fantastic book that I read last year called The Partnership Charter by uh, someone named David Gage. And it was one of the best books I've read on partnerships. It's not specifically geared towards real estate, but it is a business partnership book. And it is just like chock full of questions that you and your partner should be asking one another uh, before you really enter into this partnership to make sure that there's clarity 
around how you are going to handle certain problems uh, in that in that uh, partnership. So read that book, talk to an attorney. I think those are my first two pieces of advice. When Bigger Pockets started podcasting, no one thought we needed a store, but then books, so many books, best-selling books, rookie books, partnership books. We needed the best real estate bookstore ever, so we chose Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch stage to the first order stage to the, did we just sell out the whole store stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling real estate books or retro clothing, Shopify's platform helps you sell everywhere, online or in person. Now, speaking of online, did you know Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better than other leading commerce platforms. And no matter how big you grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control of your business. And that's why we chose Shopify for the bigger pocket bookstore. So sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash BP rookie, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash BP rookie now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash BP rookie. You dream of ditching your nine to five and starting your real estate career, but with home prices and interest rates at an all time high, you're not sure how you'll find a worthwhile wholesale deal or a quality rental property. Look, here's an expert secret. You don't have to rely on on-market properties to start making money in real estate. You actually can find off-market properties with homeowners who are motivated to sell right from your phone, tablet, or computer with PropStream. PropStream provides data for over 155 million properties nationwide with more than 120 search filters, including pre-foreclosures, pre-probate, and bankruptcy. It helps you quickly find motivated sellers even without MLS access. Now, PropStream offers public record data as well as an MLS sales estimate with over 99% accuracy to help you get the most accurate comps possible. You'll also get lead automation, skip tracing, and marketing tools like emails and postcards to close more deals quickly. They even have a free learning academy to help you get started. Get 50 leads free with their seven-day free trial at propstream.com BP. That's www.propstream.com slash BP. Rookies, 2024 is the year to start protecting your rental properties with an LLC. But look, you don't have to do all the paperwork and filing yourself. Corporate Direct is your professional and affordable option for getting your LLCs done right. They'll handle all the state filings, draft your operating agreements, and act as your registered agent. They'll even help you comply with the Corporate Transparency Act, which is a new federal disclosure law affecting every real estate investor. Corporate Direct is a family business founded by attorney, author, and rich dad advisor, Garrett Sutton, over 35 years ago. Now, his son, Ted, is a licensed attorney working with him. Together, they've helped thousands of real estate investors form and maintain their LLCs and protect their assets. If you're trying to build a real estate portfolio, do not skip the LLC. Head over to CorporateDirect.com to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporating specialist. Mention Real Estate Ricky and get a $100 discount on your formation. That's CorporateDirect.com. CorporateDirect.com. Okay, so on to our next question. And this one is from C. Has anybody bought a land and built a house instead of a rehab? 
really having a hard time finding a deal because people are overpaying. How is it getting a refi on a newly built house? So I think maybe the market might be changing a little bit where you're not going to see so many people overpaying. So hopefully you can have a better chance at, at finding deals. But I, I'm in this real estate text message spread and one of the investors sent out a message that, you know, quarter four of 2022, he, he's a house flipper and he was having properties sit for sale for over 60 days. Soon as January 1st hit, he saw a huge increase in showings. I think he said they tripled the amount of showings he was getting tripled. And he had four go under contract just in the first two weeks in January that he's seeing like just this huge uptick since the first of the year. So, you know, maybe people are going to start overpaying and overbuying again. But um, so uh, with doing this, building a, a house, I've built my personal residence, but I've never went and bought an investment property um, or built an investment property doing it from the ground up. The first thing I think that you should really do is your research on what that property is going to appraise for when you are done doing the, the build of it. Is it going to appraise for what you put into it or even more so you can pull all of your cash back out? The second thing is, is how are you going to fund that? Are you going to do cash? Are you going to get a construction loan? So if you're paying cash, one thing you'll have to do is you'll have to look and talk to banks. And we answered this on another rookie reply. I think it was the one that aired last week as to the seasoning period. Because if you're paying cash to have this house built and then you're going to the bank to refinance it, they may say, you know what, you haven't owned this house for a year and we're not going to refinance you for a year to do that cash out refinance. Um, so those are some of the things you should definitely look into before you actually go through the build process. Yeah. So a couple, couple points from my side. So just like Ashley, I've never, uh, done new construction myself, uh, on the, the investment side, we have purchased quite a bit of new construction, but it was from the builder who did the work to identify the, the parcel. They got all the permits, they managed the, the ground up construction, and we were essentially purchasing a finished product from that builder. Um, so I just kind of want to talk about the, the pros and cons of of that approach and why we decided to to go that route. So the the first pro that we saw was that we were able to get a superior product. Um, oftentimes, and you know, it depends on the level of the rehab, but oftentimes if you do a new build in 2023 versus a rehabbed house that was built in 2005, the, the value of that property, especially if you're looking at it as a short-term rental, which is what we do, um, is typically higher, right? The, the, the construction, we can, we can rehab a house that was built in 2005 to the nines, but the, the construction style, the aesthetic of a house built in 2023 is going to be more modern than a house that was built in 20 in 2005, even if it was rehabbed really nicely. Um, and that's what we've seen a lot is that our, our new constructions tend to do better than our rehabbed homes, even though the quality is just as nice, but it's just like that frame of the home is a little bit more dated with that older stuff. So that was one big uh, pro for us. The second reason why we went with a lot of the new construction from this builder was that uh, he had already identified and permitted multiple parcels in this city that we were looking to invest in. So for us, it allowed us to scale exceptionally quickly because he had already done the hard work of, you know, the permits to take 
almost longer than building the house <laughs> in California. Um, so the fact that he had already done that hard work on multiple parcels meant that we could kind of build this machine to just start acquiring these units, these properties as soon as he was done. And for us, we were in a, a really strong growth phase. That was a big goal of ours was to scale quickly and having that relationship allowed us to do just that. So those are the, the two big pros. We got a really superior product and we were able to acquire those units relatively quickly, much faster than if we had tried to do it ourselves. The cons to that approach is that we were definitely paying more for the finished product than if we had done the work ourselves of identifying the land, pulling the permits and building that, that property out ourselves. Like there's no question about it. He wouldn't be selling us those homes if he was selling it at a loss every single time. He was selling it to us because he was making a healthy profit. So we knew that we were not overpaying because it was still market value, but we know that we were spending more than had we done it ourselves. And I think those are the two things you have to weigh. Do you have the the skill set to do ground up construction? Because it is definitely different than doing a rehab, right? Those are similar skill sets, but still different. Um, and then the second piece is, you know, <laughs> do you have the time to really manage something like that as well? So the ability, the ability and the time are two things to look at. Yeah. That price that you're paying extra is really like the project management fee or like the general contractor fee is like them taking like the administrative role, the management of the whole project is what you're paying. So even if you were not to go with the builder and you did it yourself, you still may be paying a general contractor, you know, a little buffer percentage because they are going to be the one getting the subs in and things like that to actually take care of the project too. But if you're going to act as the general contractor and you're going to manage the whole project and you're going to hire individually each contractor that needs to come in, then yeah, that's where you're going to save a lot of money. But like Tony said, if you have the time and the knowledge of doing that too, um, if you are going to try it and you don't have the knowledge or experience and you just want to learn, you may end up, it may end up costing you more than it would have to actually build <laughs> just it. Just buy it from the builder. Yeah, builder. just to buy it for, from the builder. Uh, so that's definitely something to consider. I just want to share like some of the headaches that come along with um, like trying to do the ground up construction yourself. So we're, we're good friends with this builder because we, we purchased like, I think 13 houses from him at this point. And we were out of the site one day um, and I was just asking about the permitting process. And typically what he does is he'll submit plans for multiple parcels at the same time. Same exact floor plan, right? Same exact floor plan, just different parcels. And he'll submit them to the county. And each plan, remember they're identical plans, Get submitted to four different, um, like, gosh, who are the people who review the plans in the um, in the county? Like the co code enforcement officer? Yeah. I can't remember the name of the folks that, that are like looking at the plans or whatever. It is, it's case right now. But anyway, it goes to four different people, right? All the same job, but just four different individuals. They will, each person will look at the same exact set of plans and come back with different notes. So, you know, the person A will say, hey, you need to fix this thing. Uh, the second person won't see what the first person saw, but they'll call out something different. So it's the same exact thing, but four different people have a different interpretation of what needs to be fixed. So he'll get those plans back and then he has to make four separate sets of changes, some of them back to four different sets of people. So it is definitely a, a very uh, arduous and, and sometimes frustrating process to go through the whole new construction thing on your own. Or you can just live out in the country in rural areas where <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you get to know the one code enforcement officer, the one building inspector. And yeah, that's uh, that's it. That's all you have to deal with is one person and then the planning board, I guess. I, what's even crazier, Ash, is like we were, we were looking at some places in, um, in Arkansas 
And there are certain counties in Arkansas where there is no approval process. It's like you can pretty much just build whatever you want to build. Um, so, you know, depending on what city or, or county you're going into, you the, the, the ability to build something new is probably easier easier in some places. Yeah, we definitely got like remote areas like that. I haven't invested in one yet, but it's like you can put up whatever. There's no approval process or anything yeah. like that, like yeah. no permits to, to put in. And Your land, you do what you want with it, right? And it, it. here's a story that's going to, you know, frustrate some people is uh, on the building that my liquor store is in, it needed a new roof. So Daryl went out and he got somebody who's going to do the roof. We got the bid, everything. And he's like, I can start tomorrow. And so I, I said to Daryl, I was like, well, we don't have a building permit. Did he get in? He texts the guy and the guy's like, no, I, di- I didn't get one, but I can start tomorrow. So we drive, you know, it's 15 minutes away, drive to the uh, town hall and like, we need to get a building permit. We want to get this done. And she's like, okay, fill out this form. And it was a hundred dollars and did it. And she's like, okay, we'll have it ready for you tomorrow. Just come and have the contractor pick it up and we'll put it in the window. <laughs> wow. So let me, let me tell you a story on the opposite end of the spectrum. So we have hot tubs. We began installing at most of our short-term rentals in Joshua tree. And it was a very similar process where it's a different per you have to like submit plans for the, the hot tub. Like where is it located in, in respect to the house? You have to get an electric electrical permit, uh, like inspection done to make sure that, that it's all done the right way. And then there's like certain safety features you have to add to the hot tub. And it was a very similar process where, um, they would send out a different inspector every time. So the first inspector goes out, he gives us a list of things we need to fix and we fix one, two, three, and four. The second inspector comes out to, to validate that the first four things were done, but then he calls out other things that the first inspector missed. Then a third inspector comes out and he calls out something totally. So it was just like this game of musical chairs trying to like fill all these boxes for these different inspectors. And it took months for us to get some of these, these hot tub permits. So it is, it's, it's definitely frustrating. Oh my gosh. Anyway, we got off topic, <laughs> but, but hopefully, hopefully see that that was helpful for you. I think long story short is think about the, the pros and cons and your own skill set in terms of rehabbing a home versus the uh, new construction phase. And then to Ashley's point on the refinance, just make sure you're talking to banks on the front end so that way you have a good idea of what the seasoning period is and what other, you know, maybe hoops you might have to jump through if you do, do the, if you do go the new construction route to get that refinance done and, and completed on the, on the back end. Yeah. One last thing I'll add to that as an example. So, um, not in my market, a different market, but this for, friend that I have, they built a patio homes, like a a small apartment complex, just one story. And they paid cash for the whole thing, built it ground up, did all the site work, everything. And when they were done, they rented it out and it actually didn't appraise for even what they put into the deal. So they not only weren't, they, I think they had to leave in maybe 40% of what they paid for it because the bank was only going to lend them 70% of the appraised value and um, so actually it was more than that. It was more than 40% that they, le- they left in it. So um, I don't know the exact numbers, but that's something very um, to be very cautious about is making sure that it's going to appraise for what you want because you could be stuck with leaving hundreds of thousands of dollars into a deal that you didn't expect to do, especially if you were, are borrowing money from a private money lender, a, a hard money lender to fund that deal. And then it doesn't go and appraise for what you want. So with this investor, fortunately he was in this situation where he set up a, a contract with the builder 
where he was making payments to the builder uh, for kind of some of that gap. So he was able to mitigate that and then just, you know, use the cash flow to, and it all worked out where it's still a cash flowing property, even after having those, these two loan payments. So um, make sure you have multiple exit strategies and different ways to fund a deal. Okay. So our next question is from Joey Stout. How does rental income get taxed as opposed to a W-2 salary? Thanks, Joe S. Well, Joe, uh, your W-2 income is going to be earned income, and it's going to be based off of what tax bracket you are in, so how much money you have made. So let's go ahead and let's pull up the tax brackets for 2022. Okay, so if you are, let's look at here. If you make zero to $10,000, you're paying 10% taxable income. Um, and then 12% for 10,000 to 41,000, 22% is going to be what your income is taxed at from 41,000 to 89,000. Your tax rate is going to be 24% from 89,000 to 170,000 and so on. So the more you make of earned income, your W2 income, the higher your tax rate gets. So you jump up to over half a million, you're going to be paying 37% in income taxes. So that's kind of a, you know, you look at that and be like, oh, so I want to stay under, you know, 539,000 because they're also going to pay two more, 2% more in taxes and really having to figure out where's like that threshold where it makes more sense. So like if you're right on the border of one, so let's say 24% to 32%. Okay. That's, that's quite a big jump. That's 8%. And if you're make you make $170,050, you're 24%, but say you go and you make 180,000, you're getting pushed up to the 32% tax bracket. Isn't even worth taking that extra 10 grand because now that whole chunk of money is going to be taxed at 32%. Okay. So something everybody should be kind of cautious of, you know, with their income. Okay. So those are just some examples of the brackets and, you know, they, they go up, but once you, when you're in a bracket, so say 170,000, that's taxed at 24%. That 170,000 is going to be taxed at that 24%. But then if you make another 10 grand more, that 10 grand is going to be at the next tax bracket, that 32%. So it's just like your income that falls into that bracket that's taxed at that percentage, right? So like if, if you make, you know, $500,000, that entire 500,000 won't be taxed at 37%. The first 10,275 will be at 10%, and then up to 41,000, you'll be at 12%. And then each one of those different kind of falls into those different buckets. Um, so that, and you know, that's why taxes are so confusing, which is why everyone should definitely get like a, a really good CPA, um, to kind of help you navigate all those different nuances. But you're, you made the statement earlier, Ash, that your W2 salary is earned income and earned income is the gets the worst tax treatment out of all income like you are going to be taxed the highest based on your earned income and rental income it gets one of the more preferential tax treatments and we actually had Amanda Hahn back on episode 255 and right at the end of that episode she 
even within the world of real estate investing, kind of categorized which strategies get the best tax treatment, which strategies get the worst tax treatment. And like flipping was at the bottom of that tax preference treatment because that is still active earned income. And then things like short-term rentals and long-term rentals were at the top because that's more considered passive income. Yeah. So like one thing to know, I I think of like with earned income is that like, okay, you're going to work so much hours, but if you're right on the edge of one of those brackets, is it worth working those extra hours? And then now you're, you're going to have those hours taxed at 37%. And so $37 of that hundred dollars you're going to work or extra for is gone. But you guys can pull up if you actually want to look at what tax bracket you're done. Some of the examples we use were for a single filer, but they change for married, filing jointly, filing separately, head of household. Um, so go and take a look at those and you can actually kind of figure out what your income is going to be. So it will show like, okay, if you made $95,376, your taxable income is going to be $16,290 on that. Then anything over that would be that 24%. So it's like the sliding scale, I think is the, the best way to, to kind of put it. As you move up to each bracket, that income going higher is going to be taxed at those different rates. Um, so I think there's a huge advantage to passive income because of that. And then also being able to do a 1031 exchange where you can actually defer the income from your rental property if you do go ahead and sell it. Yeah. So long story short, Joey, um, you you want most of your income to be passive from your rentals and the smallest amount to be active and, and earn income if you want to be able to really maximize um, maximize your taxes. Now, there are, there are so many different strategies out there, Joey, to help reduce your your tax liability even from your w-2 job and again I'll, I'll i'll mention episode 255 again because amanda talks about this but there are ways um that you can use passive losses from your real estate portfolio to offset your w-2 income uh, most people achieve this by uh, using short-term rentals it's significantly harder to do it with long-term rentals um, but there are ways to say hey i have a one hundred thousand dollar paper loss on my my rentals, and I'm going to apply that to my one hundred thousand dollars salary in my W two job, so that you have zero tax liabilities. And I have friends that are paying zero in taxes using that exact same strategy. I am not one of those. Yeah, friends. I I haven't mastered that yet either. <laughs> I definitely had a tax bill the last couple of years, but you know, when you get a good CPA, hopefully you can start putting those pieces in place. And we had like a mad scramble at the end of twenty twenty. Two, the two, the year that just ended, um, to purchase a property to try and get to more cost segregation benefits um, as well. So yeah, you know what's also like something that's pretty good tax advantage is a farm too. Um, is getting good tax advantages on that. Like uh, for farmers, don't have to pay estimated taxes. They can wait until your tax return is due. It pay and pay your estimated taxes April fifteenth because you know when you're making those estimated tax payments. And having to prepay, like basically every quarter you're paying as you go along, you know, that's money the government is getting interest free. So that's like a huge advantage. You get to keep that money until, you know, the actual tax time and pay it at the the last minute. Um, but yeah, there's just a, a lot of write-offs you can do. And even like property taxes, you can get um, like an exemption on your property taxes to have them decreased if it used for agricultural uses and 
things like that too. Yeah. There's some weird things about farms. I have a buddy, his name's Kai Andrew. He bought a farm, like a lavender farm. Um, and he bought it because of what you mentioned, there's some tax benefits, but also the zoning requirements or like the zoning restrictions on farms are significantly lower or less restrictive than what you see on like residential properties or even some other commercial properties. And he was able to build multiple short-term rentals on this farm because of the zoning, like what the zoning allowed for in that market. So there's so many little nuances to try and like really, you know, get, you know, creative with it. But I, I think long story short, look for opportunities to really reduce your taxable income. And usually that happens by going the, the passive route versus the earned route. Yeah. And like one more thing to add to is a lot of tar- farmers are tax exempt too. So like buying a truck for your farm tax exempt, like that's huge sales tax that you're saving on purchasing a vehicle. So lots of different little things like that. Yeah. yeah. So buy a dairy farm is the moral of the story. <laughs> yeah. Before we move off of this question, so I mentioned Kai Andrew, but if you want to go back to listen to this episode, it was episode 107, and we talked about land hacking, so 10 different ways to create income streams with one property, and and Kai is the master at that strategy, and like the the whole buying a lavender farm was just one of the ways that he, he land hacked his way to success, so episode 107 if you want to hear more from Kai. Okay, and today's last question is from Hayes Holland. If you sell your primary home after one year of residency, am I excluded from the capital gains exemption rule requiring two years, or is there any way around that? Okay, so first of all, I think there's a little misconception here is that you are only exempt from the capital gains rule if it is your primary residence. If it is an investment property, you have to pay capital gains on it unless you do a 1031 exchange. That's the only exemption there. But if you're just going out and selling it and you're keeping the money, you're not doing that 1031 exchange, you're going to be taxed on that capital gain for an investment property no matter how long you hold the property. But for if it's your primary residence, you have to live there for two years, but it can be two of the last five years. So it could be any two years during that five-year period. So it's not just that you have to live in the property for two years and then sell it, you can hold on to it for another three as an investment property and then sell it at the fifth year and you still be able to have that as tax-free income. So there's a an investor friend who has done this multiple times. I don't even know how many times, but every two years he buys a new primary residence and takes this <laughs> money tax-free. And I think um, I think the rule is you can only take up to half a million um, tax-free off of it. I'm not sure exactly what that rule is, but there is like a max amount. Like you can't go and sell your house for $5 million more and get $5 million tax-free. So it might even be a million if you're a married couple, couple but um, you guys will have to look that up. Use Google because I don't know it offhand. But um, so every two years, he buys a property that needs rehab. Him and his family live in it and slowly do the renovations over the two years. And then they go ahead and sell it and move to a new property. So um, yeah, definitely a good way to make income that uh, that is tax-free by doing that as long as your family doesn't mind uh, up and moving every two years. But if you were to make half a million dollars in two years and all you have to do is move, move. <laughs> yeah. too bad. Yeah. 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 so it really depends on what market you're in. I, where I live, I, it's hard enough to, you know, to find a house for half a million dollars, let alone to sell one that's going to appreciate yeah. and have 
to half a million in two years. So same for me, right? And like in the neighborhood that I live in, like it, it's it's all a brand new neighborhood. Like everything was built like 2017 at like the the latest. So like trying to go in and like really find a lot of those opportunities are, are probably scarce as well. But you know, Hayes, the, the the question does, and we talked about it a little bit already, but we should maybe elaborate on it. But on the investment side, you can defer your capital gains taxes by using what's called the 1031 exchange. And we did our first 1031 um, and uh, not last summer, but the summer before. And we were able to tap into equity for one of our homes. And we took that and we used the, the proceeds tax-free to buy two different properties. Um, I have a friend who sold multiple of his single family residences in the Midwest and use that to buy, I think he's at seven short-term rentals right now that he purchased with that. So the 1031 exchange is a fantastic way to defer paying taxes, use all of your gains from a sale for, towards a purchase of another property. There are some restrictions around what you can do and, and there's some pretty strict timelines around when you need to identify and close on that property. But this one strategy, um, some people call it swap to you drop, is what a lot of real estate investors do to continue to scale their portfolio up without paying any capital gains taxes during their lifetime. Yeah. So while Tony was talking, I went ahead and did the work for you guys. For those of you that were driving and you couldn't Google immediately, the rule is that a single homeowner, single filers can um, get up to 250000 tax free for the sale of their primary, and then couples filing together up to 500000 So that's the profit based on it. So um, up to, I mean, not too bad over two years, half a million dollars tax free. Yeah. I mean, you could do that as a, as a full-time job. <laughs> totally. Right. And you do that a couple times a year. And yeah. we, you know, it also reminds me that we had the, we had the one guest, gosh, I wish I could remember what episode that was, but he was, he was purchasing new construction. I think he was in Texas somewhere and he would buy it like phase one of the new construction. And then two years later, you know, it'd be like phase 18 or whatever. And all of those floor plans had appreciated significantly. And he was just selling those properties once they got to the last phase and he was just recycling that capital into the next one. So you buy a new construction, live there for two years, sell it, buy another new construction, live there for two years, sell it. I think he had done it like three times for the time he came. And I think podcast. he was doing it in Austin, maybe Austin, uh, Texas. Yeah. It was definitely somewhere in Texas. Yeah. yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us on this week's Rookie Reply. If you guys have a question that you want answered under the show, you can call us at one 888 five rookie and leave us a voicemail, or you can leave a question in the real estate rookie Facebook group where you will most likely get multiple responses and answers from everybody in the group, but also we may play it on the show and you can hear our response to it. Thank you guys so much for joining us. I'm Ashley at wealth from rentals and he's Tony at Tony J Robinson. And we will see you guys on Wednesday with a guest. Great.
Braving the real estate journey on your own can be daunting. Doubts tend to creep up and stifle your ambition. Is this actually a good deal? Did you run the numbers correctly? What if you can't find a tenant? Can you even afford this place? What if I lose my job? Whatever you're going through, we've all been there. And guess what? The best way to overcome your doubts and hesitations is with a healthy dose of knowledge, networking, and accountability. That's just what you'll find in our newly released 2024 Summer Boot Camps. After these eight action-packed weeks of step-by-step -step guidance from expert investors, weekly video modules, live Q&As, interactive assignments, and new friends to keep you accountable, you'll be ready to tackle your first or next deal with full confidence and expertise. Choose from small multifamily, short-term rental, or rookie boot camps and register by April 12th for the lowest prices. Head over to biggerpockets.com slash enrollme today. That's biggerpockets.com slash enrollme. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.